Hi everyone, I'm Jason Scorse and welcome to another episode of Dispatch from the Zombie Apocalypse. I hope everybody is doing great. Today I have a really fascinating interview slash discussion with Hunter Lovins and Eben Goodstein about the upcoming technology disruption with the plummeting price of renewable energy, particularly solar, and what is being coined the solar dominance hypothesis in which solar power has become so cheap and will become even cheaper that really within the next few years and perhaps decade or so, we will see a wholesale transition away from fossil fuels and the stranding of trillions in fossil fuel assets. As someone who works in climate policy and environmental policy and just a concerned human who would like to see civilization thrive, this is obviously incredibly inspiring and good news. And Eben and Hunter are incredibly knowledgeable about these topics and provide a lot of detail even for the the skeptics. So it, it really left me incredibly optimistic and hopeful about the future. Uh, real quick here, Hunter is a president of Natural Capitalism Solutions. She has a new book that I highly recommend you all take a look at called A Finer Future, Creating an Economy in Service to Life. It's available at all bookstores and uh, on Amazon, of course. Uh, she also is involved with Change Finance, and it's change-finance.com, in which she helped create an ETF fund that is completely carbon-free. The fund is, uh, the ticker stick, sticker for that is CHGX. And she also is uh, involved with the BARD MBA program, in which she teaches uh, courses on sustainability. And the graduates of that program really go on to some great jobs in uh, as chief sustainability officers at uh, many companies you know, around the country and world. Uh, Eben is an economist at Bard College, and he's director of the graduate programs in sustainability. And so he is uh, you know, really the leader of this academic program. And he's written a number of articles and books, including a college textbook called Economics in the Environment, which I also highly recommend. So between the two of them, you really couldn't get more knowledgeable people to talk about what this technological paradigm shift is going to mean. And I think you all will be as hopeful as I am at the end of this discussion. So without further ado, I bring you Hunter and Eben. Hi, everybody. I'm here with Eben and Hunter to talk about the solar dominance hypothesis and all of the ramifications thereof. So welcome to you two, and thanks for being on the podcast. It's a pleasure. Thanks so much for having us. Excellent. Excellent. So I think to, to start, if one or both of you could just briefly summarize the solar dominance hypothesis, this because although it kind of gets it across in the name, you know, there's some subtleties here and, and, and I think most people haven't heard of it yet. So please uh, wax poetic on the solar dominance hypothesis. 
Go ahead, Eben. Uh, okay. Um, the basic idea here is that um, we uh, have reached a tipping point. Uh, we're, we're at this moment where um, we've had 30 or 40 years of incubation of solar technologies, um, and they've been falling in cost pretty reliably at about 10% a year, doubling in installed base uh, every two years. And so we've now reached a tipping point uh, in utility-scale solar where it's as cheap or cheaper, actually, than conventional fuels, and it's winning uh, uh, competitive bids unsubsidized across the planet as kind of the dominant utility-scale solar uh, electric uh, uh, technology. Um, but in a couple of years, we're going to hit another tipping point where um, residential, distributed, rooftop, community-scale solar plus storage is going to be at grid parity. Um, and then in a couple of more years, we're going to be at a point where it's 20, 30, 40% cheaper than the grid. Um, and so what we're setting ourselves up for is a, is a true energy disruption in the mid-2020s uh, that uh, we explored the idea, could we be at 50% solar by 2030? And I want to give a shout out right now to the guy who really got Hunter and I thinking about this, who's Tony Seba, who is a, a Silicon Valley entrepreneur. Um, and he's putting his money behind the idea that, uh, that the world will be 100% renewable, primarily solar, by 2030. Yeah, I want to give a shout out to that video that you, you sent me, the link there, so people, you know, listeners can just Google Tony Seba, S-E-B-A, and uh, I'll try to put a, a link on it in, 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 the, in the notes. Uh, but that's, that was a really good primary. It has a lot of good data, and very cool and collected, makes a good case. Hunter, do you want to add anything to that? kind of overview? Sure. I've known Tony for about 10 years. And after the 2016 election, I sat down with him and said, okay, now you don't think that we're going to go completely renewable by 2030. He said, oh, now I'm sure. So I started watching, just tracking events. Things like here in Colorado, our coal-loving utility in 2017, put out an all-source bid. Who can supply us 1,100 megawatts, any price, any source? Y'all bid. The bids came back. Wind a little below two cents a kilowatt hour, solar a little above. Wind plus solar plus storage, three cents a kilowatt hour. The lowest fossil bid was four cents a kilowatt hour. The utility said, no, bid it again. Uh, they're, now they're solar tariffs. The results came back essentially the same. And so the utility said, oh, uh, could we uh, shut down two coal plants and pledge to go two-thirds renewables? The Public Utility Commission said, sure. Now the utility has said we're going 100% renewable, as has the entire state of Colorado, as has California. Hawaii was first. Costa Rica is essentially all renewable now. They run about 300 days a year completely on renewables. There are hundreds of companies, states, countries, all saying we are we're part of the transition. We are moving away from fossil fuels for fundamental economic reasons. China, the projections are China will probably hit peak coal, something like 2023. I was just in China. They've 
dedicated a whole lane of a freeway to autonomous electric vehicles. This is one of the drivers that Tony sees. The AEVs will be, Tony reckons, tenfold cheaper to deliver what it is you want, which is to get from here to there, than paying to buy, fuel, maintain, and insure a private vehicle. Tony says, throughout history, wherever you have had a tenfold drop in the cost of delivering a service, you get disruption. Now, if Tony is right, and I think he's more right than not, we are looking at the dissolution in value, probably pretty complete dissolution, within about 10 years, of oil, gas, coal, uranium, nuclear, the utility industry, the auto industry, the banks that hold paper in them, the pension funds and insurance companies that are invested in them. This is going to be the mother of all economic dislocations coming at us far faster than we have any idea how to cope. Yeah. I've been saying this <clears throat> ever since Tony and I chatted. Back in 2011, John Fullerton took carbon trackers assertion that we needed to leave 80% of the carbon in the ground if we weren't going to roast the earth. And John said, those fossil deposits are somebody's assets. They're on somebody's balance sheet. Who holds them? He calculated that the oil majors, the coal majors, the sovereign wealth funds like Saudi, Venezuela, have about 20 to 30 trillion of these assets on their books. And if Carbon Tracker's right, and we do leave this stuff in the ground, he said, this is going to be, he called it the 20 trillion big choice. Last November, 2018, Carbon Tracker said the about to be stranded assets are 25 trillion and they put peak fossil at 2023. Wow. In comparison, the 08 financial collapse was over 2.7 trillion in stranded mortgage assets. This is an order of magnitude greater stranding. Yeah. So where is your money? <laughs> if you hold fossil assets, you might want to rethink that choice. Beavis Longstrath, who was uh, SEC commissioner, said it is entirely plausible, even predictable, that continuing to hold fossil assets will come to be seen as negligent. Tom Sanzillo of IEFA put a number out that if the New York Common Fund, the big pension fund, had divested of its ownership in Exxon 10 years ago, it would have made $17.5 billion more than it did make. Continuing to hold fossil assets is just a bad investment decision. Hmm. You're, you're, you're prompting me to think about shorting fossil fuel stocks. <laughs> that might be my, my ticket to, uh, to the upper middle class. <laughs> you <laughs> would not be the first to uh, have that thought. Uh, I work with a group of young people. We created a little company called Change Finance to build the first truly fossil fuel free ETF. And if anybody's interested, change-finance.com. And Andrew Rodriguez, our CEO said, why don't we build a fund to short oil and other fossil? And I said, ah, care careful there, son. If someone were to sink a tanker in the Strait of Hormuz today, 
-hmm. tomorrow oil would be over 200 bucks a barrel. Right, right. Well, it would have to be a long-term hold, obviously. Exactly. (laughs) The volatility of oil prices is something that is distressing to the oil traders. You know, it ran up to, what was it, uh, 149 and change uh, per barrel. And within six months, we had uh, the 08 financial collapse. It then sank to, what was it, 27? Mm-hmm. And a bunch of companies went bust. Yeah. Uh, there is a great effort by the oil traders, by those sovereign wealth funds, to keep it north of 50, because, and preferably well north of 60, that's the point at which their Ponzi scheme of, say, fracking is arguably profitable. Although, again, Tom Sanzillo and Bard's economic, or finance professor, Kathy Hippel, showed that there has never been a quarter in which fracking companies have been profitable. Right. Yeah, well, well let's, let's, let's come back in a few minutes to these larger ramifications if this solar dominance hypothesis pans out, which certainly the evidence is quite compelling. And I do want to kind of game out some of these implications. But, but before we get there, can we just, you know, there's a lot of people who are skeptical about this, right? This is even your pretty diehard environmentalist, right? The Green New Deal is taking, you know, it's pretty big right now. And it has targets for 2030 that are, that are not even as ambitious as complete, you know, renewable, 100% carbon free. And they're getting a lot of pushback, even within the kind of left progressive community. So can, can you talk to any of the skeptics, you know, any of the arguments against this bullish prospects and, and, is there any, are there any, you know, things we want to consider on, on that end of the spectrum? No, I think the, the real issue here is that people have a hard time envisioning disruptive transitions, right? It's just easy to say, well, it's doing this rate, it's going to keep at this rate, that sort of thing. But uh, disruptive technologies, and those are ones where you have, you know, a substantial uh, improvement in performance or, uh, you know, a 5 or 10x uh, cost advantage, um, we know from experience that those things can take off, right? 2007, if you had said, you know, what's your prediction for cell phone penetration, right, in 10 years, and people did, it was, you know, a hundredfold below what we've actually seen. No one would have said 3 billion phones across the planet. And to buy into this idea of solar dominance in the short term, now, I think it's important to recognize that everybody agrees that solar is going to be dominant in the long run. You know, and, and well, pretty much everybody. And I think that's new, right? I mean, if you're going back three or four years ago, people were still thinking about how are we going to solve this climate problem? What's the transition going to look like? But, you know, solar has just continued moving down this cost curve. And I think it's gotten the attention of, you know, the CEO of Shell Oil, um, McKinsey. So it's not a question of if, but when, right? You know, and how fast. And how fast. And these folks are saying, you know, 2040, 2050, 2060. But what we're saying is 2030. Um, and the idea is, you know, if in 2026 I can install residential solar panels or buy into a community solar system with batteries and, you know, it's going to cost me 30% less than buying energy on the grid or, and getting cheaper, right? Um, there's going to be a gold rush there uh, and capital is going to be pouring into this space and people are going to be innovating and no money down opportunities. And uh, anybody who's got access to capital is going to be saying, this is an awesome investment. And that, 
it's really going to be, we're at this point where we're really going to see what is primarily a market-driven transition to solar. It's not about government policy uh, driving this transition anymore. You know, we've gotten to the point where the market can do what it does well, which is to take innovative and profitable and better technologies and spread them around the planet overnight. Right. And again, I think that that's the mind flip that you have to get into to think that this is uh, a likely outcome in the near term. Kodak's most profitable year was 12 years before they ceased to exist as, <laughs> as a company, before they went bankrupt. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's a good point. Right. I, I, think, I think in some sense, answering the skeptics, what, what we're really... I think what we're really talking about here, again, you said it's, 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 it's kind of not an if, it's a when and how fast. And you're making the argument along with Tony and others that it's, it's, it's much faster than even most of the kind of progressive kind of environmental groups believe. And, and the data really does seem to be pointing, you know, in your favor. I would say, you know, as an economist, the only issue that I might think that would slow this down a little is the transaction cost issue, right? People are kind of used to doing what they're doing. There's a default option and, and people can stick with pretty inefficient things for a pretty long amount of time until the economics becomes so compelling that they really are forced. But even that argument, like what you're saying, when it's 30, 40% cheaper, the transaction cost argument starts to kind of erode as well. So you know, if these numbers are correct, I, I do think that, you know, it's pretty compelling. I, I don't really see where the skeptics have, a, have, a, have something to hold on to. The other thing that will drive it is the increasing volatility of the weather. In 2013, here in Colorado, it flooded. About um, eight years before that, I had put five kilowatts of solar photovoltaic on the ranch, some batteries in the garage, my husband was halfway apoplectic. This will never pay for itself. It, I don't care how high the price of electricity goes, this will never pay for itself. I had a one-time payout from, in some stock from a company that had done some work for it. And I said, I'm gonna put solar on the place. It cost me about $65,000 to do energy efficiency on the building and the solar and the batteries and all of that. If I were to double the system today, 13, well, this was two years ago, 13,000. I haven't bid it recently, but I am going to double the size. In 2013, when it flooded, we were out of power. We were islanded. We, we didn't actually flood, but uh, we couldn't go anywhere. Power was out for a week, uh, except at the ranch. We had plenty of power. Our refrigerator kept working, didn't lose any food called the neighbors, said, hey, you want to come charge your cell phones? My husband quit whining about the solar system. I then went out and bought a leaf. I'd been debating the frackers, and they'd put a guy up against me who was really good. He said, look, you want our product. We're going to drill it. You're going to buy it. <laughs> the next morning, it was raining. He couldn't go horseshoeing. He said, uh, hey, you want to go test drive a leaf? I said, yeah, I do. And we bought it on the spot. And I love it. My husband calls it the hippie car. It's a little screamer. Off the line, I have beat a Porsche, a Mercedes, a BMW, a Mustang, and one of these big smoker trucks. And I was riding in a friend's Tesla last week. Oh, my. 
And he has the slow version, the zero to 60 and 3.9. Uh, they can do it now in under two seconds. And when he, when we entered onto the freeway, he said, watch this. Oh my, if I'd have been holding the cup of coffee, I'd have been wearing it. <laughs> that, that little sucker screams. Mm. It is simply better performance. It's a better vehicle. And as people see uh. their friends and neighbors start to get these things, as they get to play with them, it's gonna be a question of delight. I love leaving a light on at the ranch. I really don't care. It's mm -hmm. the sun. Right. What part of free don't you understand? <laughs> yeah, and I, I've been become a pretty stickler for people who leave lights on, and maybe I could drop that annoying habit of mine. <laughs> um, all right, well, th th this. So let's let's move on from the skeptics argument because I think, you know, I think you make a pretty compelling case and. You know, again, whether it's five years, ten years, it's coming very quickly and much more quickly than we had we had prepared for, even in, in recent history. I do want to take a side note, really quick, just to to ask you if you have any idea of what you know, because the beauty is now that that the government doesn't have to be involved; it doesn't have to subsidize. This is a kind of a pure unsubsidized market prices that are beating fossil fuels. But was there? Whoa there! Any... Whoa there! All energy is subsidized. Fair. All fair enough. energy. Fossil right. energy is heavily subsidized. Fair enough. Uh, the estimate from uh, the IMF is that uh, $5 trillion a year, $100 million a minute, goes to subsidize fossil energy right now today. Right. So I would, I'm a free marketeer. Let's get rid of all forms of subsidy. But if they are going to continue to pour stupid money into fossil, Let's not say, oh, we don't need any solar subsidies right now today. Let's have a level playing field one way or the other. Again, I'd prefer let's get rid of all subsidies. But uh, what but, I think but the next your point, Jason, is, I mean, the subsidies are going away for solar and wind at the federal level. And, and your point being that uh, even absent the subsidies and in the face of all the subsidies that fossils getting, uh, we're going to see this disruption. Right, right. And that, that is an amazing economic kind of point, because I think even, even a few years ago, right, when the Republicans were threatening to take away the wind and solar tax breaks, there was a lot of, you know, uh, hand-waving about how this was going to cripple the industry. And this is, you know, this is less than five years ago, right? And, they, and so it is amazing how quickly now they can compete even without those. And so that's just, it is an amazing turn of events and, and something to be celebrated. And I'm wondering, if, if there's any knowledge that you all have about any of the government investments, you know, the stimulus money, I, I like to say in my classes that, you know, Obama, that the 2009 stimulus package had more money for green energy in it than all of U.S. history combined up to that date. And, you know, that he doesn't get a lot of credit for that, but there was about, I think, $85 billion in green energy mm -hmm. stimulus money. Obviously, there were prior presidents, and, and then in Europe and China, and I'm wondering if in any of your work, you can point to any of the that money as as instrumental in pushing the technology, just because it would be instructive for other types of technologies that we might want to, you know, to move forward in this same way in the future. Any thought, thoughts on that? I think it's really engaging because to me, this is kind of a, if we get this, if we get there, right, and we solve climate change by 2030 or 2035, this will be the biggest success story of government policy in the history of mankind, right? Absolutely. So, you know, we started... Except that very little of that sub 
subsidy money, the, the TARP money, actually went, got dispersed, and went out at the community level where it was needed. But the, regardless, I mean, if we look at the big picture here, right, I mean, this solar energy was, you know, started as a consequence of government space program back in the 60s. That's true. And when it, you know, was a thousand times more expensive than it is now. And it's really been as a consequence of continued investment at relatively modest levels by the U.S. government, by the Germans, by other Europeans, more recently by the Chinese, that have really done the research and development and driven the, um, uh, the, the scale uh, to, to achieve the economies of scale and the learning by doing that's accomplished this sort of amazing feat of uh, doubling the uh, scale of, uh, of installed uh, panels every two years and driving prices down by 20% every two years. And, and so we're now at this point, as I said, right, where, where the market can take over, right? Let's so, look specifically at what happened. Yeah. The U.S. and Obama got reamed for this, put money into Solyndra. Solyndra was a very sweet yeah. technology. Had the price of solar stayed high, Solyndra would have been a winner. The Chinese said, wait, um, if the problem is the cost of raw refined silica, let's just subsidize the creation of a whole bunch of silicon refining facilities. They did. The price of silica dropped. Uh, Solyndra was bankrupt. We invested in a technology. China looked at what is the infrastructure that it's going to take to launch this industry. But the U.S. Well, government also invested in Tesla, though, Hunter, right? I mean, yes. Tesla got the same loan guarantees that Solyndra did. And has, so, Elon I mean, has made it. So it's a portfolio yeah. approach, right? You know, yeah. some of them are, are going to win, some are going to lose. But the, then the Germans said, how do we ensure that the market players see a working market? They said, what is the real cost of continuing to burn fossils? And they picked the roughly the EPA's number of mid 30s of dollars per ton of carbon. So they said, okay, let's subsidize solar up to that solar wind, the renewables, up to that cost with a device called a feed in tariff. So anybody who puts in a facility that is going to last for a long period of time can be paid the the going price of electricity plus the cost of carbon, so in the German case, it was about 35 cents kilowatt hour. Oh my, now it is really worth the while of anybody with a renewables technology to put this stuff in and get paid for it. And you get paid for 20 years of delivering the energy at a honest cost of what the energy is worth to society, counting the fact that it's not emitting carbon. So that launched it in Germany, created this whole market. Then here in the United States, Jigger Shaw at the time with Sun Edison said, we need a new business model. Let's go no money down. I will put solar on your roof, no money down. You pay me out of the savings. It's actually gotten to the point now where for a homeowner, that is not a good deal. You ought to just buy and own the system the way I do. But at the time, it jump-started the market. Lots of people said, oh, I want solar on my house, no money down. So you had a federal government 
subsidy to a particular technology or to building the infrastructure, a federal government subsidy to creating the leveling of the market, a market mechanism, those three things at around 2014 all came together and that's when we think was the real tipping point. By the way, a man named Jeremy Leggett, who brilliant analyst of the energy situation out of the UK, runs a, uh, has a website called Future Today, where he has a whole set of slideshows and he just popped another one up today on the transition to what we're calling solar dominance. And he puts the tipping point at 2014. Paul Gilding out of Australia puts the tipping point at 2014. Jigger puts it at 2014. So I think we will look back in history at 2014 as the year of the triumph of the sun. Great, great. Well, that, that's, a, that's a nice summary. And, and even like you said, what this really is, is being kind of set up to be is, is one of the greatest kind of, uh, you know, posters for, for government intervention and to, to deal with externalities and public goods and, and, and has been incredibly successful. And as you mentioned, you know, we took a portfolio approach. Not everything is meant to work. In fact, I always make an argument in, in my classes that if all government policy works, the government isn't doing its job because it should be taking risks that the private sector isn't. And therefore, some failures are indicative of a, a more you know, risk-seeking approach, which is what the government should do. These kind of moonshot, all the above kind of approach, especially in the, uh, when the technology is nascent and, and, and in the beginning stages. So this is, this is awesome stuff. I think we've, we've, you, you all have made the case persuasively that we're, we're on this road. And so let's now switch back to the ramifications because these are going to be huge. And I don't think there, we, there's a lot of political thinking on really what this is going to mean for society. So let's, let's talk about the stranded assets issue, right? This, whether it's 20, 25 trillion, it's huge amounts of money. Hunter, as you mentioned, this is an order of magnitude greater than the losses in the, you know, the 28, nine, you know, recession and financial collapse. Who are the big losers in this, right? Obviously the fossil fuel companies, but those are, most of these are publicly traded. So they're owned by many people. How does this trickle down in terms of pension funds, jobs, you know, macroeconomic forces? Is there is there any thinking on this that you can, can describe to us? Well, I would say, first of all, I mean, you, you want to look at the upside as well as the downside. Um, and in particular, Tony Siba has really emphasized this. So there's going to be a lot of winners um, as well as a lot of losers. So if you're a pension fund and you're diversified and you're paying attention, you know, you should be able to be all right. You're going to, you know, get out of those fossil fuel stocks and into – uh, solar battery technologies, um, uh, all the AI and software technology that's associated with electric vehicles and all the support systems. So it is a transition. And as long as you're diversified uh, in your investments, this is a good thing for the economy, not a bad thing. Except uh, you will lose money if your theory of uh, your modern portfolio theory of diversification is I have to have every exactly. asset class, i.e. I am going to stay in utilities, i.e. Yeah. I'm going to stay in fossil assets. That's just bad investing. Don't do it. And if you own a 401k, the odds are very high that your plan has you in the fossil industry, in the utility industry, 
in industries like PG&E, Pacific Gas and Electric, which has declared bankruptcy because the impact of climate change is so severe that the big winds blow trees into their power lines and their power lines into trees and cause massive wildfires that kill people. You don't want to be owning companies that are stupid. That, that ought to sort of be rule 101 of investing. So it's worth looking at what is in your portfolio and then going to whoever runs your portfolio and saying, I want to get out of fossil, please. Absolutely. I mean, I think the issue is more for, you know, those companies, those communities, those workers who uh, can't diversify, who are stranded. Um, that that's how, how are you going to, to think about those, those questions in this? Well, in and this again, case. if you're smart, you begin thinking about that now. My exec here at Natural Capitalism's husband has run a trucking company that, whose primary customer is the oil industry. He is now in interviewing with Amazon to run their whole fleet because he realizes time to get out of oil. Right, right. Yeah, and I mean, I think the poster child for this one is really uh, the, 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 the um, truckers and uh, the, the cab drivers and the Uber drivers, right? Because uh, in combination with the solar dominance thing, if you're really gonna solve the climate change problem, it's gonna come through the electrification of the vehicle fleet which is going to come through, you know, a very rapid transition to transportation as a service. Um, at least that's the model for how we would actually do this by 2030. And, and you can just see that's, that's a whole industry that's set up. Um, uh, and, and it's part of the bigger question of kind of the whole AI world that we're moving into, right? So this is not just going to be an energy disruption, but there's a whole sort of uh, backdrop of, of kind of AI job disruption that's, you know, sort of fueling this. Yes. So what do you do about that big picture? One of my colleagues at Bard, who's been involved with um, AOC and the Green New Deal, Pavlina Cherneva, uh, has a proposal for a guaranteed jobs program. Right. So that if, if we, you know, if it really gets to this scale of like, you know, AI inspired mass unemployment um, and political unrest, that that would be a really smart way to go. And the idea here is, it's not a guaranteed income thing. So the government's not writing you a check, but the basic idea is anybody that wants to work for, you know, livable wage plus health and care uh, should be able to work. And if there aren't enough jobs, then uh, nonprofits should be able to apply to a government fund to get income or wages to pay workers to do stuff we need to have done because there's plenty of work to do, right? Yeah. Um, we need to take care of old people and children and uh, we need to educate folks, and uh, there's a lot of environmental restoration work. So there's plenty of work to do. It's just the market system is increasingly rendering people irrelevant uh, because it's profitable to do that. Yes. Yes. Well, I think I think a couple points that you both made are, are really worth emphasizing here that the upside of solving the climate crisis and, and getting off of fossil fuels is going to, you know, dwarf any of the costs, even if there's going to be some big losers. And as, as you point out, these are people who are really just going to, you know, hunker down and not see, you know, see what's coming. And, and in some sense, the market punishing them is kind of what markets do, right? Which is if you don't respond to incentives and prices and, 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 and forecast, with, you know, then, then you get burned, right? And, and, and in some sense, we shouldn't feel sorry for these companies. 
uh, I, I, my thinking though here is they're obviously going to put up a big fight, right? So when you're at, you know, looking at 20 to 25 trillion of lost assets, you're not going to go down quietly. And so some of these scenarios for how obviously we see the Trump administration already floating things about subsidizing coal plants and that are, you know, that are now uncompetitive that so far ironically has not gone through the, um, the, the, the FERC. Uh, they have been actually shot down, but there's there's obviously going to be desperate, more and more desperate attempts to kind of protect these assets and and burn every last drop. Do you see any any scenarios in where you know they could extend the, the dominance of fossil fuels for any significant amount of time, or is this just too overwhelming for them to really put up much of a fight? Well, I think it is very important that we ensure a just transition. The people who have dedicated their lives to a technology that gave us the prosperity we have today, deserve to be treated with respect, with dignity, and to be offered alternatives. And this is really the point of the Green New Deal. That said, there are, there will be a huge effort to say, oh my God, look at the poor coal miners. We have to keep burning coal. The economics are so overwhelmingly against that, that under the Trump administration, the first two years of the Trump administration, there were more coal plants closed than under eight years of Obama. The economics are simply driving the end of coal. This will happen more and more, and with large capital intensive industries, like all of the fossil industries, at the point at which you pull out sufficient assets, resources, the whole thing comes down very fast because there just is no economic rationale for leaving it standing. You know, I, I think that I, there is this sort of idea that this is magical and it's going to happen now because the market's in control. And, and, and I think the pace of this uh, dominance is very much going to be influenced by uh, individual people and their choices and what they're doing as consumers and citizens. Uh, you know, we've got states like Florida, the Sunshine State has virtually no solar power, right? And, and that's a consequence of, of places like New York, not the Sunshine State, you know, way ahead of, of Florida in terms of installed solar capacity. Now that's partially the case, been true because, you know, these technologies have required support up till now and they are sort of capable of being stopped because, you know, they are or have been, you know, until recently more expensive. Um, once you get that tipping point, though, where I'm a guy down in Florida and, you know, I can go into my Lowe's and I can order a solar system plus batteries and I don't even require my utility to give me permission to do this because I'm not selling my power back. I don't need net metering, right? Because I got this battery suite and I'm going to charge up all my batteries when the sun's shining. Heck, I don't care if I'm putting it into the grid. doesn't matter to me, right? That's going to be much, much harder to stop. Right. Uh, and in fact, it's downright un-American to stop that. <laughs> right. right. Not, that they, not that they won't try, but uh, they, they will certainly fail. Well, it, just, to, just to throw this in really quickly, I, there's a, a statistic that I use in my teaching that NRA members have solar panels at twice the rate of the, the average American citizen. And so, you know, if we don't talk about climate change, talk about energy independence and freedom and everything, it turns out conservatives love solar and wind as well. Mm -hmm. So I think I, I'm shocked, though, that, that, that your stat that, that, that Florida has very low solar. That really doesn't make sense. And that clearly must be because of concerted opposition to the industry, right? That can't be because of uh, 
of actually the assets available. So that I is fascinating. That Sacramento Municipal Utility, which had been a real leader in encouraging its customers to go solar, has just slapped a, or has, is proposing to slap a massive demand charge on anybody who installs rooftop solar because they're realizing the solar is going so fast, it's actually cutting into their core business. Now, the future of the electric utility industry, the smart ones, will be the ones that enable their customers to get what it is they want. So autonomous mobility, transit as a service, and the utility is providing to the AEV companies the charging capacity. Shell Oil recently bought the largest electric vehicle charging company in Europe. The smart utilities will be the ones installing solar on their customers' homes. And yes, over time, this will shrink the, that particular utility's business. But if you ramp down your fixed costs, at the same time you're ramping up this new business model, you have a bridge to the future. If you fail, well, then you become Kodak and G&E. And I think this is the disruption that is going to really require the most innovative thinking because if people, um, so, so the vision here would be 2025, 2026, here in New York, I've got my solar panels up, I've got my batteries on my property. I still have to rely on the grid, you know, for let's say two or three months a year when there's not enough sun to see me through. Um, but uh, it's going to be cheaper for me to, significantly cheaper for me to, to, to self-generate for eight or nine months of the year and then just rely on the grid for three months. But then that, that creates a real economic nightmare for the utilities because they don't have a revenue stream, but they've got to maintain the grid and these expensive, you know, power plants. So how do we, that, that, that's going to be the public policy and kind of social issue that we're going to have to work our way through to figure out how we can, uh, you know, in, in some ways, it's kind of like, you know, we still have to have landlines uh, for the people who don't yet have cell phones, right? So, and, and this is a big social justice and equity consideration as well. Yeah, and, and, and the challenge is, okay, you could say, well, we're just not going to go there, right? Let's just keep the old system. Um, but the idea here is it's like, yeah, we are going to go there because uh, anybody who can do it will do it. Right, right. And, and just, you know, in, in, in your last point here, it made me think, you know, most people are living in cities, urban environments, and that's only set to accelerate in the coming decades. How does this model work there, right? Because, you know, we're talking about apartment buildings and things like that, right? It's clearly not everybody with their own kind of battery. So that's still utility scale. Can you speak a little bit about how this revolution will impact kind of, resi you know, residential and urban settings? Well, here in New York, we're going big with offshore wind. So we'll have, you know, sort of uh, gigawatts of power coming in through Long Island. Um, there's, we have proposals for utility scale solar that are being held up right now, actually in kind of the first phase of figuring out how to do the siting and all that stuff, but we'll get that sorted out in a few years. And so I think, and Hunter can speak to this more than I can, I think really every new power plant is gonna be a utility scale solar plant. I mean. GE's gas turbine business has crashed in the last two years. Crashed, right? And that's a real indicator of, of where the market's going. Well, again, the, this was the bids in Colorado. Right. Gas was 
the lowest of the fossil bids and still a cent per kilowatt hour above base load solar and wind, base load because they added batteries to it. So yes, we will see utilities building out, utility scale wind, utility scale solar. And if the utilities do this intelligently and can deliver affordable electricity to their customers through renewables, they will continue to have customers. If they don't, I mean, I'm at the point where if I double my solar system, put some simplify batteries in my garage as opposed to the old lead acid batteries I have that are now starting to corrode, then why would I have a connection to the utility? Right. And from a, from a systems perspective, it's a good thing to have a grid. We paid to build it, it's here. If I'm feeding, right now I'm in my office, I'm not at home, my solar system is chunking out electrons, which I sell to my utility. In the evening, I buy back from them. And so if they put up uh, the wind plants so that their evening power is renewable, well, I'll keep being connected to them. But if they get grumpy with me, I'll cut the tie and run on just my own system. Or I'll do a blockchain deal and sell power to my neighbors. Yeah. Now, in cities, you have a heck of a lot of rooftop in the areas surrounding cities where you have the industrial facilities, you have a lot, a lot of rooftop. Couple that with, a little, as even said, a little bit of offshore wind if you're at the coasts or existing hydro or, you know, wind solar hydro was shown by Ed Kahn at Lawrence Berkeley Lab back in the 70s to be a more reliable grid than coal and nuclear. Because when a coal plant goes down, or more so a nuclear plant, you take a gigawatt out of service. If my solar panel goes down, who cares? My neighbor's solar panel is chunking out electrons, and solar panels don't go down. So from a national security standpoint, from an energy vulnerability standpoint, we would have a much more resilient, reliable grid if we had distributed solar all over the country coupled with some big scale utility solar and wind. And we make the transition in a very seamless way. And we thereby solve half the climate crisis. Tony says, by 2030, we do it at a profit. You add regenerative agriculture where you suck carbon out of the air and put it back into the soil through holistic management, uh, holistic grazing of animals, and you've solved the climate crisis at a profit by 2030. I love it. And this is, this is worry about social justice. Yeah, right. We can. Uh, There's something that's actually in our in our sights here. This is exciting. I, I, I want to just talk about any potential unintended consequences here. You know, one of my uh, colleagues works heavily in kind of the mining sector, and she works on some of you know the. The, the rare earth metals and some of the other heavy metals and the mining kind of externalities that's that's really being front and center now that a lot of the, the batteries need and a lot of the, the the wiring for solar and for these type of new generation yeah. facilities so i'm just wondering if there are any of these that you think are of significant concern that that they need some they need some serious attention any of the you know the externalities that might come from this transition yeah cobalt is poisonous it's a uh, conflict mineral there have been articles in Forbes about uh, blood batteries. 
It's one of the reasons I like the little company Simplify, which is a different cathode chemistry of lithium ion ferrous phosphate. Lithium, by the way, is recyclable. And so as we build out this technology, we build in the components of a circular economy. You get the, the dangerous and unpleasant minerals like cobalt out of it, out of the supply chain, and away you go. I would add to that that, um, you know, you always want to think, okay, we're adding more of this, but we're taking away some of that, right? So uh, this, is a, this is going to be a decentralized system, way more efficient. We lose, what, 80%, something like that of, of no, it's not that high. I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. It's 10% uh, uh, efficiency loss just along the wires for transporting electricity. So we have to produce way more than we're actually using. Um, and um, in particular, uh, if you think about kind of marrying the, uh, this solar dominance with uh, the other piece where we think we're heading, which is towards uh, electric vehicle dominance, right? Then, well, yes, you're adding all the additional mining associated with producing those solar panels and those copper wires, but you're uh, reducing all of that fracking and oil and gas production, right? Um, and as, you know, the reality is we've got 10 billion people coming to this planet, right? Seven and a half alive today, another two and a half coming. We're not, going to, have a, not. We're not going to have a zero footprint, right? We are not going to have a zero footprint. Uh, you know, as, as Yvonne Chouinard says, everything we do causes some harm. But if we don't want to have to deal with 10 billion, if we do five things, if we feed people, reform land tenure, educate people, particularly women, provide information about and access to contraception, in every country where this has been done, population goes to zero population growth. And most of the Western developed countries absent in migration are already at zero population growth. So the, it, the saying, it's inevitable we're going to 10 billion or 11 billion or 15 billion. It doesn't have to be that way. If we decide we want to have fewer people on earth, we know how to do that and do that humanely. Right. And I think we'll, we will be there, I think, within 100 or 150 years. But we got a bubble um, that we're going to have to figure out how to get through um, in the next 20 or 30. Well, right. we have some very serious bubbles. The number of people now displaced on the move is somewhere in the 65, 68 million number. Yeah. They are typically coming out of Middle East, North Africa. They all want to go to Europe. They... This phenomenon is leading to the destabilization of countries in Europe. Arguably, the rise of demagoguery and populism the world around. We're going to have to figure out what to do with the bubble we have right now. And again, do it humanely. One of the better suggestions that I've heard is the uh, German Marshall Plan with Africa although some people attack it as being colonialism 2.0, but countries like Germany investing in the solar transition in Africa, creating jobs, creating economic stability in the countries in Africa that are now being so badly impacted by climate change. You know, her, well, I mean, I, I, today just took out a thousand people in Mozambique and you know, we sort of shrug but the people whose villages have been wiped out are going to be adding to that, uh, that refugee load 
all of that's, them. That's the real positive thing about solar dominance, Hunter, right? Is that as solar technology gets cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, you're providing people with energy, right? Access to energy, which is critical to keeping them where they are because it allows them the opportunity to build resilient communities um, in the face of the, the trends that, that we're all facing. Yeah, no, that's a great point. Uh, and, and, and I do like that, that idea that, you know, that part of the justice angle is helping, you know, helping, you know, promote that transition faster for, for some of the developing world that's, that's really bearing the brunt of, of the climate impacts uh, as we speak. So just to, to wrap things up here, I think, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm more hopeful than I've been in, in, in many weeks here, and I'm, I'm always suspicious of that. So uh, <laughs> I'm going to have to go re-listen re, re to this and see where, where what we got wrong. I'm, I'm just joking. This is Well, this as is you do that, go <laughs> take a read of my most recent book, A Finer Future, Creating an Economy in Service to Life, which lays out the playbook of how it is we move from the degenerative economy that we have today that is destroying life to a regenerative economy where we meet the needs of everybody on earth. We do so equitably. We live within the planetary boundaries and we win. We, yeah. we create an economy in service to life. Yeah, I just, I guess, ordered that for the school library. You'll be, you'll be happy to know. So uh, I, will, I will be reading it shortly. <laughs> Thank Let you. So on top of that, um, come play with Hunter and me at the Bard MBA program in sustainability in New York City. <laughs> definitely. We'll definitely promote that as well. Well, let me have one final question on that. So I'm really on the, on the micro uh, level here, which is, you know, and I'll use my, my personal example here. So I bought a solar system for my house. I did the economics and saw that those kind of zero money, you know, dollar down solar city kind of models weren't, weren't in my best interest. So I bought it out. I got the 30% tax credit, pretty happy with it overall. But, you know, I'm, I have a little remorse in the sense that everything's getting so much cheaper and better that I'm wondering if I had just waited a couple of years, you know, would I be a, have been in a better? Now, you can do that continually, right, because it always is getting better. But I just wonder for the people who are on the fence wondering about what's the right timing and the right type of system, do you have any advice for, for the individual consumer? Well, as with any large capital purchase, shop ask around, ask for references, talk to people who have bought the system, talk to people about what was their experience in having it installed on their house, uh, how is maintenance on it if you need any done, and then buy it now. Why? Again, my example of our getting flooded out. If I had waited until today where the cost was a quarter or less of what I paid, we would have been a week without power. It really would have been miserable. And we weren't. And I have been making money off my solar system by selling it off to the electric utility when I'm not around. And I have the peace of mind. I know that my electrons are coming from the sun. To me, that was worth every penny of the extraordinarily large amount of money that I paid for it 10, 15 years ago. I would do it again in a heartbeat do it now, you will be a happier person. <laughs> on, on my side, I would say, you know, I bought my solar system. I basically swapped out my, my monthly payments for a loan payment. So I came out just sort of perfectly even. But, you know, in another eight years, my loan payment will be done and I'll be getting free energy. Right. I'll be paying nobody for my electricity. And I think the really cool thing about it is when you get into it, you start to see all the opportunity. 
right? So I've, I, I got kind of the maximum installed I could to get the tax credits, uh, but I'm not quite generating 100%, right? And um, so I'll be ready. For, I'm ready for round two, you know? When this stuff gets cheaper, then I can really achieve energy independence um, and I could, you know, potentially be supporting my neighbors with some property here. We could do a utility, I mean, a community scale solar and, you know, really begin to, to sort of live that kind of energy independence uh, vision. That's great. That's great. Well, all right, I think those, I like those both unequivocal answers of do it now. And so no, nothing on the fence about that. And uh, well, that's great. And you're making me feel better about my system. <laughs> so, uh, so look, Hunter and even, I, I really appreciate this discussion. It's probably the most hopeful conversation I've had on this podcast for, for a long time. And the fact that it's backed up by rigorous data and trends and analysis and not just wishful thinking is even adds even more credibility to it and even more hope. So thanks for all your work. And uh, maybe we'll check in in a couple of years and see how it's all panned out. I look forward to that. Love to thanks, do that. Jason. Right. Bye-bye, Jason. Okay, everybody. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation and are pumped up to help transition the world to a fossil fuel-free future that is much more healthy, peaceful, and sane. And I think my antidote for today would just be to check out uh, Hunter's book. Again, that's A Finer Future, Creating an Economy in Service to Life. And also check out that change-finance.com where you can look at the new carbon-free, fossil fuel-free ETF, which is CHGX. And then also if you're you know, interested in uh, graduate school and sustainability, definitely take a look at the Bard MBA program and uh, you know, see if that's a good fit for you. And finally, if you are a homeowner and uh, have not gone into the solar power uh, revolution, if you're not a member of that yet, uh, now is there's really the best time. The prices have plummeted and you can get systems with the tax break that are really affordable and you will soon have free power really for the rest of your lives. So join the revolution and get on board. You will feel great about it as Hunter mentioned. So with that, everybody, I hope you have a great rest of the week. If you're enjoying the podcast, please share it with your family, friends, and colleagues. And uh, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, and Stitcher. And uh, rate it if you have a moment. So with that, uh, take care, everybody, and be well.